You are listening to Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club. This month, we will be tackling the topic of healthcare worker wellbeing with a specific focus on burnout. This is a topic which is very close to many of our hearts and one of increasing interest in the light of the ever-increasing pressure on the healthcare system and the recent pandemic. This month, we are lucky enough to be joined by several special guests. They include Westmead ED Registrars, Diane Premnath and Nassim Efani, Westmead Emergency Staff Specialist and JMO Coordinator, Dr. Laura Brown, Westmead Emergency Staff Specialist and Director of Training, Dr. Felicity Day, and Natalie Harmon, a clinical counsellor and psychotherapist who has extensive experience in clinical counselling within the medical sphere and who is currently running programs in several departments across Westmead Hospital. In the three papers we have chosen for this month, we will look at the prevalence of burnout among emergency physicians, how we define burnout and the factors which may contribute to it, as well as exploring the possibility of system-wide initiatives to try and combat burnout. But before we get started, Let's say hello to everyone on the panel. My name's Diane. I'm an emergency advanced trainee at Westmead Hospital. Hi, my name is Laura. I'm an emergency staff specialist half-time here at Westmead, and I also work half-time in Norwest Private, and I'm a ASIM wellbeing champion, so allegedly I have some experience in that domain. Hi, my name's Felicity. I'm one of the ED staff specialists at Westmead Hospital and one of the co-directors of training. Thanks very much for inviting me. I'm very excited. I don't know that I have any specific expertise in wellness, but it's definitely an area that interests me. Hi, I'm Nassim. I'm an advanced trainee in emergency medicine working at Westmead, and this is my first time on the podcast. Hi, I'm Maurice, and I'm back for another month. Hi, everyone. This is Shreyas. Hi, I'm Natalie. I'm a PAPFA registered clinical counsellor who's been running wellbeing and counselling programs at Westmead Hospital for five years now and other Sydney hospitals too. Thanks for having me. And I'm Jack. I'm one of the emergency registrars at Liverpool Hospital and very glad to be back for another episode. So first up, we have Westmead emergency registrar, Dr. Nassim Afferni presenting a paper by Zhang et al. titled Burnout in Emergency Medicine Physicians, a Meta-Analysis and Systematic Review. So I'll pass over to you, Nassim. Thanks, Caroline. Obviously, physician burnout is a serious global issue, and it negatively impacts the health of physicians and adversely influences patient outcomes. So hence the importance of basically doing this research. Burnout basically in previous research has been shown that it's prevalent between emergency staff, and there has been some studies published with focus on emergency physicians, but the results are inconsistent. So the researchers in this study performed a meta-analysis to systematically evaluate the prevalence of burnout among emergency physicians specifically. And they claim that this is the first meta-analysis of its kind, which includes all three subclasses of burnout measured by the MBI scales, which is the MASLAC burnout inventory among emergency physicians. So they've done an extensive search through PubMed, Embase, PsychInfo, and Cochrane databases from their inception to September 2019. Eligibility criteria for the study included in terms of population was emergency physicians suffering from burnout. Studies were the studies that used MBI to assess burnout with sufficient data available. Outcomes were prevalence of burnout and its three dimensions. And they used studies that had the design of cross-sectional studies or intervention studies. 
They had two independent investigators which extracted the data. The focus of the data that was extracted was on study characteristics, including author's name, uh, publication year, country, number of participants, and response rate. And then in terms of participant characteristics, they looked at mean age, sex ratio, outcomes, which were relevant in terms of prevalence rates of high levels of emotional exhaustion, which was the scale was more than 26, high levels of depersonalization, which scales more than nine, and low levels of personal accomplishment, which was less than 34. And they also included mean scores calculated by the MBI from the studies. They used the JBI critical appraisal checklist to look at the quality of the studies. And in terms of statistical analysis, they checked the between study uh, heterogeneity. And if there was significant amount of that, they used the fixed effects model for meta-analysis. And they also did a sensitivity analysis to test for stability of the pooled prevalence. So in terms of results, they had a total of 243 studies, 88 was removed because of duplication, 62 were excluded based on inclusion and exclusion criteria. Then they checked the full text for 93 remaining studies, and 76 of those were removed due to lack of physician-specific data or lack of sufficient data, or basically the ones who were, which were just reference abstracts or reviews were excluded as well. So this left them with 17 studies that they included in the analysis. Of these 17 studies, they had a population of 1,943 emergency physicians with the mean ages of 35 to 40. 16 of these studies were cross-sectional and one was intervention. They were done between the span of years 1994 as the oldest one up to 2019. Actually, most of them were done between 2014 to 2019. 14 of these studies were multi-center and three were single center. So in terms of doing the critical appraisal checklist to appraise the studies, that showed that eight studies were high quality and nine studies were medium quality and there were no low quality studies. So outcomes analysis showed that in 13 studies, which included 1,255 participants, they reported prevalence rates of high levels of all three subclasses of MBI. Seven studies, which included 1,126 participants, reported mean burnout score on the MBI scale. Among 1,255 emergency physicians, the pooled prevalence rates of high levels of burnout and in three different categories were as follows. So emotional exhaustion was 40%, depersonalization was 41%, and personal accomplished rates were 35%. Of 1,126 participants, mean burnout scores in emotional exhaustion was 23.95, depersonalization was 11.63, and personal accomplishment was 34.69. They also checked the studies for publication bias, and they used the Wegenegger tests and didn't find any evidence of significant publication bias among the 13 studies that reported the prevalence of high levels of burnout. So in discussion part, they've reported the pool analysis of data as showing 40% of emergency physicians experiencing high levels of emotional exhaustion, depersonalization when assessed by MBI. They've basically mentioned that MBI is a gold standard for measurement of physician burnout and has the three dimensions as mentioned. In the three subscale scores, high levels of emotional exhaustion caused higher levels of depersonalization and both could successfully differentiate burned out workers from non-burned out workers. 
And in previous studies, it's been suggested by researchers that high levels of emotional exhaustion and depersonalization alone are vital components of burnout. And the prevalence of high levels of emotional exhaustion and depersonalization were consistent, which supported the stability of the results in this study. Previously, it's been suggested that emergency physicians are more susceptible to burnout, and the results of this study support this. As compared to previous meta-analysis done on different specialty physicians, which showed prevalence of emotional exhaustion, personalization, and personal accomplishment as 21, 29, and 29% respectively. And there was another meta-analysis done previously, which showed oncology physicians had lower prevalence rates. So essentially emotional exhaustion of 32%, depersonalization of 24%, and personal accomplishment of 37%. So compared to all other workers and emergency physicians are more prone to burnout. And this comes from comparing the results of this study from a meta-analysis done on 1,566 emergency nurses with numbers essentially showing emotional exhaustion as 31%, depersonalization at 36%, and personal accomplishment levels at 29%. They have discussed several factors that contribute to professional burnout. The proven ones from previous studies with significantly sort of higher burnout scores are working at nighttime, working in emergency on its own, experiencing job strain, fear of making mistakes, experiencing sleep disorders and workplace violence. And in terms of on the level of personal or individual factors, being younger, having fewer years of experience, being female and having particular personality characteristics as contributing to higher levels of professional burnout. Conclusion from the study is that essentially shows high level of burnout prevalent in emergency physicians at approximately 40% experiencing higher levels of depersonalization and emotional exhaustion. And based on this, the suggestion from the researchers is to do more in this field and pay more attention to the mental health of emergency physicians and suggest that more investigations need to be done concerning interventions that are helpful to reduce the burnout in this group of physicians. Thanks so much, Nasim. I think you did an amazing job of summarising quite an in-depth paper. I just wanted to open it up to everyone. Was anyone surprised by the results of this study? I think anecdotally, no. I think that's probably pretty consistent with our own lived experience of working in emergency, that anything between a third to a half of our colleagues are feeling the pressure. I think it would be really interesting to repeat something like this after the COVID, if there's any such thing as after COVID. Surely all of those factors that we know contribute to these feelings of burnout um, have only been exacerbated by the last two to three years experience. I mean, I agree, Laura. We all know that on the floor, we see it day in and day out, don't we? And that I think we like to think the rate is lower, but the reality is I would suspect post-COVID, to be honest, that those rates are higher. So I will just add a point that when I was looking for studies to essentially choose one from, lots of studies pop up which were done at post-COVID time. And there's a lot of basically linking COVID to physician burnout. So we specifically just wanted to know what was it like before COVID came on? So we found this article as one that's pretty comprehensive, looking at plenty of studies, essentially. I think it just shows that, you know, COVID is not the only thing that contributes to physician burnout. It existed. It wasn't acknowledged. And I think now that COVID is around, 
there's a lot of talk that, you know, people just sort of contributed to COVID. Maybe that's the reason if COVID went away, everything would be fine. But obviously this shows, no, it existed and it was high enough even before COVID came about. I think that's a really important point to make. Like we were on our knees before we were thrown into the depths of this pandemic and I suppose the point is, is that if things were so bad at that point where you're saying 35 to 40 percent of people were experiencing significant symptoms of burnout, surely that number can only be higher now. When you reflect on that and the implications of that for us as a profession, that's kind of wild, like that close to half of us are experiencing significant burnout symptoms like that's a ticking time bomb for our profession and the implications of that going forward in terms of staff attrition rates, turnover, sick leave, and just our own well-being is wild. I'm interested, Natalie, you've worked with healthcare professionals for a long time. Has burnout cropped up as a new thing or are you seeing the same pattern over and over again? Pre-pandemic, about 50% of healthcare professionals were burnt out. I'm definitely screening higher levels at the moment. There's no surprise there. Without wanting to drift too far from burnout, I also think we need to look at other things other than burnout as well, because we know pre-pandemic depression rates as well. And there's a very fine line when you look at burnout and and depression. One's a workplace phenomenon and one, you know, is more of an individual psychopathology. But, you know, depression rates were between 21 and 43%. If you look at a range of the studies for that, a quarter of doctors had suicidal ideation. That's pre-pandemic. The suicide attempt rate was 2% and 3.3% in females. And then interestingly, another figure that's come up during the pandemic is actually 40% of healthcare professionals in hospitals are screening as having PTSD as well. I do think that, you know, we can often just think all this is burnout and undoubtedly, you know, it is, it will fit that box of burnout, but there's other stuff at play as well. And it has absolutely increased from my experience post pandemic. I actually wonder if you could make the point that in the height of the pandemic, perhaps we were feeling increased senses of personal achievement and accomplishment because there was all of a sudden this focus on our ED people being healthcare heroes and all of a sudden the teams had an appreciation for the work that ED was doing and we actually did feel like we were at the front line and contributing and people were thanking us and now that that all kind of wears off and our own adrenaline wears off that actually there could be this kind of post-COVID crash. I do agree with you on that and we know that acknowledgement is a protective factor for burnout. There's a few of them but acknowledgement is one. Natalie, you mentioned recognition as a protective factor for burnout. I was wondering if you could go into more protective factors. There's a few, and I'm drawing on Maslach's research here. So recognition and reward, and I don't just mean financial reward, but acknowledgement and recognition of staff is really important, along with a sense of community and connection is really important to protect from burnout. We know that human beings can actually tolerate quite high workloads if there are several other of these factors in place. So-and-so is going to be at work today. It's going to be a really good shift because this person's going to be there or we can grab a coffee together. Having that sense of belonging is hugely protective. Another protective factor is not having your ethics compromised. And we know that moral injury is something that's also very much at play at the moment. So probably not so protective right now because moral injury is quite high. I mean, what do you think? 
I think that's such a fascinating point. And I think it becomes really tricky to tease out what is actually burnout and what is just a very justifiable sense of reduced personal achievement. How can I possibly feel like I've achieved something when there's a hundred people in the department and they've all been waiting eight hours and every single one of them that I see is cranky because they've been waiting and shouting at me and I'm constantly the face of an apology for something that actually isn't my fault. There aren't the resources, there isn't the environment for which I kind of feel a sense of personal achievement. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, There's this sort of sense of futility in what you do where you're only going to churn through a tiny proportion of the patients that are waiting or you're just acutely aware that a lot of people are going to walk out and you don't know if those are the people that are going to be safe or actually some of those people are going to have serious conditions that are going to be missed. Just as a particular shout out, I particularly want to acknowledge our sort of front of house nurses in this regard, because at least from a working in the main department point of view, you get the opportunity to then take the patient inside, have the clinical interaction, maybe come to a diagnosis or initiate some management. And you have the opportunity to get them to the point where they're feeling better. Whereas the triage nurses and the people that are working in the front are purely responsible for that initial phase of care in which people are probably at their very worst. And, you know, no one is well behaved after sitting in a plastic chair for eight hours, particularly when they're sick. And so I'm acutely aware that they cop a lot of unfortunate behavior from the community and the toll of that is enormous. Like if yeah. you scream at a flight attendant, you're going to be taken off the plane. You're not going to be upgraded to first class. We, we have really some responsibility in creating those expectations. Like when people yell, we do bring them inside yeah. and we do attend to them above the people sitting quietly having their heart attacks in the corner. We do have to be careful about shifting the blame back to the consumer though, because a lot of these people, you're right, behave badly, but they behave badly in circumstances which are extraordinary and they're not given the opportunity to be the best versions of themselves. And I'm sure on their best days, they're all lovely and polite and appreciative. And we actually beat that out of them by exposing them to a system that doesn't have the resources to care for them adequately. That's part of the ethical injury that's done to us. I think most of us understand that these people are waiting for a really long time and we feel terrible. There's nothing that we can do. And so we maybe go home with a feeling of not having helped as many people as we could have when we walked in only wanting to help. Just like we're saying not to shift the blame back to the consumer, sometimes it feels like the rest of the hospital is shifting the blame back to ED. And I know certainly some days you'll have patients, you feel like you've done a fantastic workup, you've initiated all the right investigations, the treatment, wrap them up in a nice bow and you present them to the team and then you just get berated or you'll get patronized or at the very least, you don't get to feel that sense of achievement that you were hoping for. And I think for me that that carries the most weight. And that's the kind of thing I find myself finishing a shift and holding on to. And you can see this kind of complex interplay whereby the fundamental problem being a lack of resources across all levels creates this environment in which normal, happy, civil, compassionate people become incivil to colleagues, to patients, to staff, etc. I don't know how familiar you all are with Brene Brown and some people love her, some people hate her. I personally love her. And I remember listening to a talk that she gave in which she gave an anecdote about having to share a hotel room with this woman whose behavior was just disgusting, like wiping her nose on the furniture kind of thing. And having this realization that every single person out there is actually trying their best. Like no one wakes up in the morning going, I'm going to make someone feel awful. Everyone actually 
has the intention most days to do their best. And it's the circumstances that they meet or that they find themselves in that prevents that and turns them into a horrible person, even in that short interaction. And sometimes I find that really helpful to think that like, okay, if someone was really rude to me or someone's behaved badly, they're actually doing their best in the circumstances that they're in. And that's not to tolerate the behavior as such. It's not to say that their best is particularly good. And, but it does help to sort of make you take it a little bit less personally and realize that maybe it's less about you and your performance and more about them and how they're feeling about themselves. Well, that's compassion, isn't it? Sometimes it's worth acknowledging that actually we're all capable of all things, both really excellent behavior, but also really terrible behavior. And by acknowledging that, we can then mentally prepare. This is a really important thing for like in particular emergency trainees, but really anyone who is, is going to work in the healthcare setting. Regardless of how much we optimize our workplace, there's going to be situations in which we're extremely stressed out. And I think that proactively reflecting about how am I going to respond, you know, when there are multiple critically unwell patients and I've got a line of juniors waiting to talk to me and there's multiple nurses who are concerned about various problems and it's all coming to me at once. How am I going to practice that response so that I don't snap at someone and I don't yell at someone and I manage the situation appropriately? That's something that I think by being proactive and actually considering that beforehand, you're much more likely to achieve a civil conversation or a civil response to the stressful situation. Or if you do snap, because we all do at some point, publicly and loudly apologizing for it and owning that behavior and acknowledging that that behavior was unacceptable and apologizing for it. Like I said, like we are the culture. Like I think there are enough people in Westmead who are really, really well-intentioned that if we all go out and practice this and practice being our best selves with a real sense of active intent that actually culture change is already achievable and in us. I'm staying a bit quiet because a lot of what we've been talking about is actually what I was going to talk about later on. But again, I think moral injury is to me the big thing that actually is, you know, what we need to change from an organisational level down. The reality is, can we fix that in the here and now? No. So it comes down to those things that we can fix. And I tend to call it all of these things, you know, it's about being human. So on the floor in those moments, trying to remember the best parts of humanity, which is the kindness, the empathy, that we're all human and we are all capable of the best and the worst. And I think we just need to recognize when we do have those slips and it's okay. Everyone is going to make a mistake, but like you say, calling that out, apologizing for it when it occurs and making sure that we try to take the opportunities to be humane, kind, and demonstrate empathy and compassion and manners and use those, you know, when the opportunity arises. I think the other thing that you touched on, Treas, is about how we can use this kind of sense of tribalism and say, oh, you know, cardiology always does this or ED always does that and ICU always does the other. And in some ways that can actually be helpful because we create bonds and connections within our own tribes and that can increase our feelings of belonging. And But we need to be careful not to do it in a detrimental way where actually we create an us versus them approach that actually promotes further incivility. Yeah, I was going to ask Natalie, how do you approach the clinician that comes to you with these kind of issues that are out of their control, that we can acknowledge are the product of an environment and multiple factors. This is where the counselling space, you know, comes into play because they're really complex. This is really complex stuff, right? And we need to integrate several counselling approaches across time. 
It comes down to, you know, the core components of therapy, of counselling, which is creating that safe psychological space, free from the stigma. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that in my interlude, but a very safe space where someone is truly heard and seen, empathised with, where there's lots of compassion play. And, you know, from there, insight arises. And from insight, then change can take place. It's a really big question. I probably haven't answered it completely fully, but it's a huge answer. You know, how do you work with this? How do you work with burnout? How do you work with suicidal ideation, with stress? These are all, you know, there's no one way that fits everybody. I think it's interesting because there's definitely a lot of factors at work that we have absolutely no control over. And I think it's often easy to fixate on those things and become increasingly frustrated about the things we can't change. But I think even this discussion has kind of helped me to think about actually the extensive amount of things that are in our control. And I think even being able to regain that power over some aspect of our workplace and realise that we can actually change things is quite positive. I mean, apart from definitely seeking out counselling services, we're very lucky now at Westmead to have that option. I think maybe trying to take on some of what Laura's discussed in terms of being compassionate and trying to create a better workplace for ourselves might help to combat some of those issues that we can't actually change, at least for the moment. As someone who loves a metaphor and alluded to the metaphor of the glass being half full or empty or refillable, and there's lots of similar mechanisms that you can apply, but just the concept of there being a tank and there being input into that and outputs from that. And so things that fill you up and things that drain you and there might be lots of things draining your tank. And I suppose it's about trying to recognize which of them are within your control. Like what taps can you turn off or slow down to a drip rather than a torrential pour? The work one is obviously the torrential pour that you just don't have a huge amount of control over to turn off. But maybe there are other things in your life that you can try to turn off. And certainly there are things that we can all do to try to fill up both inside work and outside work. And so everyone's outside work things are obviously going to be highly dependent on the individual, like whatever makes you happy, do more of that. But I think also inside work, like what's been helpful for me is my counselor suggested trying to focus on and be grateful for the small moments in work where you do sometimes, albeit maybe rarely feel like you have had a win. And some people find journaling helpful, like you might have a gratitude journal where you think about three things at the end of the day that actually were positive in your day and trying to actively focus on those rather than the overwhelming onslaught of negative things. As much as I want to continue this conversation all day long, I think we probably should wrap up for the discussion from this paper now. So Nassim, just to wrap up for this paper for today, what would be your take-home points for us listeners at home? I have one important one and that's the fact that if you want to solve a problem, you have to identify the problem and basically accept that it exists. So I think this paper has achieved that. So they've kind of like just gone above and beyond to look at multiple studies and come out at least with one um, sort of prevalence number just to show that this problem is out there and it's quite important. So I think that's probably the like stepping stone for a lot of other studies to look at various reasons behind burnout and, and try to address them, design interventions and other things that can basically, you know, help solve the problem. 
Thanks so much. I think that's a really excellent point for us all to take home and think about. So thank you. Now it's time for our first interlude segment of the month, which will be presented by Dr. Laura Brown. So thank you so much for the opportunity to come and speak today. You're giving me all my like podcast fangirl dreams come true. And this was a really nice opportunity for me to talk about something that I've been thinking about since 2020. So I was originally invited to give brief talk on something that we felt was relevant to a topic that was given to us for my 10-year college or uni reunion back in 2020. And because 2020 happened, I never got to give that talk. And unfortunately, I feel like it's a talk that's as relevant today, or maybe even more so than it was then. The topic that we were given was doctors in the media. And certainly at the time, the way doctors were being portrayed in the Australian media was really all very, very negatively. Lots of headlines around bullying, people leaving training, units losing their accreditation. And the all too prevalent rate of suicide, both attempted and completed amongst the medical community. And it's awful that that's how our profession is being represented in the media. And so I wanted to kind of share some reflections on what we might be able to do to kind of change that narrative. The word that comes to mind for me is about compassion. And I can already hear a lot of you on the other side of this podcast rolling their eyes as I say that. I'm very aware that compassion can be seen as a fluffy subject and therefore that it's not important. And I really want to try to challenge that notion because I think it's this interpretation of compassion that allows incivility and rudeness to permeate our workplace. And so what I'd really like to do is kind of address some compassion myths and two in particular that I think are out there. The first one is that I think people think, well, I'm already compassionate by nature because medicine is an inherently compassionate profession and therefore civility just kind of comes naturally to me and I don't necessarily have to make any extra effort at it. Well, I wish it were that easy as someone who does like to think of themselves as generally pretty compassionate. I know that I have my bad days and that there are days where I really actively have to practice this and that it really doesn't come naturally to me at all. And I'm sure that there are many out there who maybe are even worse than I am on a bad day. I'm sure that there are many of us who ended up in medicine, not because we are naturally compassionate, but because we actually just had better grades than we knew what to do with. And if anything, maybe medicine seems to attract some more natural narcissists. And many of us might have very high IQ and maybe low EQ and really do need to practice this very, very actively. And even a naturally civil person in the right environment can become an incivil person. So when we have personal things that are bothering us, or if we're particularly stressed that patient care is being compromised, or if we're just in general being a bit of a prick, if I'm allowed to say that on a podcast, it's the three Ps, right? The personal, the patient, and the prick factor that can make us just become suddenly incivil. And that particularly happens when we're in a so-called permissive environment that allows that behavior to occur. A permissive environment is when there's an expectation that we can just get away with what it is that we're saying. A non-permissive environment, the example I like to use is, for example, on a flight. No matter how incompetent or irritating your flight attendant is being, you would never scream at a flight attendant because you would be kicked off the plane. You just know that that sort of behavior is not tolerated. 
And yet, for some reason, in our workplace, there seems to be an expectation that that behavior is tolerated and we witness it and we see it all the time and we don't call it out. And so we actually must learn to practice the same restraint at work that we would exercise on a plane because the consequences have to be just as high. We are the culture of our workplace. If enough of us decide that this behavior is not tolerable, then it won't be tolerated. A note here also, not only on compassion towards others, but compassion towards ourselves, because you probably can't have much of one without the other. You'd never let your phone battery completely die because we know the consequences of that. We can't let that happen to ourselves either. We can't let our batteries be completely drained. Self-care is not a luxury. It's a priority. And for those who are wondering, you know, are you a glass empty or a glass half full person? I think we've missed the point. The glass here is refillable. We need to think about what's emptying our glass and what's filling our glass. And a lot of the time, it's easy to feel like our glass is being completely drained by our work environment. It's really important to focus on the impact that we actually can have and what's within our control, which might be particularly outside of work. I'm very aware that when we talk about self-compassion, that the word resilience tends to come up. And I completely acknowledge that there is a problem with that word because the implication is somehow that the problem lies within you and not within the organization or the systems and the processes that are actually contributing to our feelings of poor workplace achievement. And this is an easier solution for organizations is to talk about resilience and focus on resilience because it's much easier for them to shift the blame for the actual problem back onto individuals and to remove the blame from the systems and organizational processes that are actually causing the problem. They can tell you to do yoga rather than actually changing the changes that need to be brought about. There's also a real connotation of this kind of toxic positivity mindset. Just be happy. Just think positive thoughts and you'll feel positive. Don't stop smiling. Kind of cheerleader stuff. That's not necessarily helpful. By delegitimizing the feelings that we're having, we actually can make that sense of of burnout and poor self-care worse. And often the solutions that are proposed to a so-called lack of resilience, like getting better sleep and doing exercise and eating better are actually all just ways for me to feel like I'm failing even more, that I'm not sleeping well, that I don't exercise 10 times a week, that I come home and order pizza because I'm so exhausted rather than eating the fresh fruit and veggies that apparently are going to make my well-being better. I think although it's extremely important to provide insight into where the actual problems lie and not just shift blame back to the individual. We do still have a responsibility to think about what is in our locus of control and do what we can to look after ourselves for our own sakes. Because if we don't make time for our wellness, it is undoubtedly true that we will be forced to make time for our illness. I'm not usually the sort of person who goes to conferences and take pictures of slides, but I was at a talk in London at the Don't Forget the Bubbles conference, and they had a talk on well-being. And they had this slide up with a quote on it that just really resonated with me. And I broke my rule and I took a photo. And the quote was, you are not required to set yourself on fire to keep other people warm. And I was like, wow, that is something that I do a lot, particularly at work. I will easily go a full 10 hours and do overtime and not have once stopped to take food, water, use the bathroom. And I think that I'm doing patients and my colleagues a favor by doing that. But really, all I'm doing is burning myself out completely in an effort to keep other people warm. The second myth that I want to try to address is that compassion is soft or fluffy and by connotation, unnecessary. 
This is an attitude that has to change. To quote one of our local Australian experts in this space, Mary Freer, we need to start thinking of civility and compassion as something which is robust, something which is muscular. We need to think of compassion as a skill. Some of us might be de-skilled, but we can practice with active intent and upskill in the same way as we practice our trauma team leading or our central line insertion skills. We have a responsibility to keep our compassion skills current and up to date. And there's actually evidence that when we do this, that we become not only better people, but better doctors. It matters. And it matters because if you are not a civil clinician, and if you were someone who was rude at work, rudeness has measurable impacts, not only on the recipient of the rudeness, but also the impacts that extend beyond the recipient. And I'm going to quote some figures here from um, the Civility Saves Lives campaign, um, which is run by Chris Turner in the UK. And I'd really encourage you to check out their website. They've got some really useful stuff. They quote that the recipient of incivility has a 61% reduction in their cognitive ability going forward. People who witness the incivility have a 20% reduction in their cognitive ability and are 50% less likely to provide help to other people. Patients and relatives who witness incivility in the hospital environment have a 75% reduction in their overall satisfaction with the care that your organization has provided. And similarly, in team scenarios, when there's incivil team members, there's an overall reduction in the cognitive capacity and creativity of the team against all clinically significant measures. In the surgical setting, there's been studies that show that rudeness increases staff sick days and staff turnover, decreases attention and helpfulness, and increases errors. Indeed, rude surgeons have been shown in studies to have higher rates of wound complications. This stuff has actual clinically measurable impacts. A simulation experiment that was done in NICU teams embedded a foreign expert to observe the sim and to make either mildly rude comments about the team's performance or to make neutral statements. The sims were videoed and were evaluated by three blinded experts who assessed the team performance, information sharing and help seeking. Diagnostic and procedural performance scores were for teams who were exposed to rudeness. This has also been shown in the operating room environment where a simulated operative crisis was performed against 76 anesthetic trainees and they ran sims with an embedded either rude surgeon or a control so-called normal or civil surgeon. The trainees who were exposed to rudeness performed across all kinds of clinical measures at a rate of about 63.6%, as opposed to the control group who performed much better at 91.2%. But what was really interesting in this study is that their self-reported performance was not significantly different. And so the trainees exposed to rudeness didn't even realize how upset or how impacted their performance was by that rudeness. The opposite is also true when you are kind and when you are civil at work, actual performance indicators increase. So people who receive kindness have an increase in their perceived autonomy and competence, an increase in their levels of happiness, and are 278% more likely to go on and perform acts of kindness themselves than non-receivers of kindness. Also, people who give kindness experience feelings of increased autonomy, competence, and increased job and life satisfaction. So civility is the only behavior that can make you appear both warm and competent. And for those of you who are just finding this all too hard, there's a very, very simple strategy. Just two words can have a huge impact. Just saying thank you. Saying thank you increases feelings of happiness, sensitivity and empathy, 
increases feelings of self-esteem and motivation, increases mental strength and resilience, and increases people's sleep performance. I have another quote that I really love. It's from someone um, called Jill Hicks, who was a designer who was a victim of and survivor of the London Underground bombing. And she's gone on to become an activist and she's just amazing. I'd encourage you to see her TED talk. She says, someone somewhere is feeling the effects of something that you have said or done. This is our great responsibility. And so I'd encourage you to reflect, what effect have you had on the last person that you interacted with at work? And what effect do you want to have on the next colleague with whom you interact? Thanks, Laura. That was incredibly enlightening and had so many pearls of wisdom within it. I don't think I'll be the only one rewinding and listening to that a couple more times. That concludes the first part of our three-part series on healthcare, worker wellbeing and burnout. As always, please feel free to contact us at Westmead ED Journal Club at gmail.com. We would love to hear your thoughts. Stay tuned for parts two and three coming soon.